Hello world, this is Roger Corvale and this is For the Hope. Here we read through the Bible conversationally, talk about the truth claims of Christianity, and learn to fall more in love with Jesus and the people in his world. You ready? Let's roll. Welcome. There is a significant theme in the Bible from the Garden of Eden to a new heaven and new earth at the very end. And this theme is of relationship, relationship of the creator and the create head. It's what is beautiful about Christmas, that Emmanuel, God with us, took on flesh to come be with us as he came on a rescue mission. And you might recall that the tabernacle or temple, going way back into the Pentateuch, right, the early books of the Bible, were to be was a, a place of symbolic location of God's presence. Yes, of course, he was there, but he's everywhere as well. Another topic for another time. But that means that it was a big deal early in the book of Ezekiel when God abandoned the temple. Today, that changes. Even in the midst of those kind of boring descriptions of temple measurements. Hey, Hopeful, welcome to For the Hope's Daily Audio Bible, where we read through every word of God's revelation of himself and consider our own life and work stories along the way, including God's heart as he gives Ezekiel a vision of reversal and restoration. And there's one other important detail that I'm going to fill in in our closing reflection segment. But starting with the New Testament, as we usually do, I want to remind you of the flow of where we've been in Matthew. You might recall that one significant theme in Matthew is authority. And in the last oh, week or so, we've heard the authority of the message of the Messiah, the authoritative, authoritative power of the Messiah, and then his authoritative mission, both in himself and in the ones he commissioned. So then what happens? Well, you know, Satan's not going down with a fight, out of fight. He runs into opposition. That began yesterday and, well, ramps up today. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing which is that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how they entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means when it said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I just got to pause and say this. I literally heard a teacher, a really big name teacher, who is kind of the prosperity gospel type, use that passage right there to say that God breaks the rules. My friends, that is false. And um, I'm just going to throw that out there. You can call me if you want to talk about it. God doesn't break the rules. He makes them, but he doesn't break them. Moving on from there, Jesus entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? 
he replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And then he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this, of course, and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. When Isaiah wrote, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick, until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the man, Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit." You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. 
The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but it doesn't find any. And then it says, I'll go back to the house, my house that I came from. And returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. And while Jesus was speaking, still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And on that little mind twister, that ends <laughs> chapter 12. And uh, maybe we'll have a chance to come back that, to that tomorrow. But for now, moving along to our Old Testament segment in Ezekiel. Um, big picture. Chapters 40 through 48, the last nine chapters, are there for a reason, even if we have to go digging for it. So listen to this next little section, and then I'm going to tie that all back together in our little closing reflection segment, because related to how we opened, talking about God with us and God left or abandoned the temple, well, now a big reversal albeit with some speedy reading over some of that stuff. Yep. Ezekiel 41, picking up in verse 5. Then he measured the wall of the temple, and it was ten and a half feet thick. The width of the side rooms all around the temple was seven, seven feet, and the side rooms were arranged one above another in three stories of thirty rooms each. There were ledges along the wall of the temple all around to serve as supports for the side rooms so that the supports would not be in the temple wall itself. The side rooms surrounded the temple widened at each successive story for the structure surrounding the temple went up by stages. This was the reason for the temple's broadness as it rose. And so one would go up from the lowest story to the highest story by means of the middle one. I saw that the temple had a raised platform surrounding it, and this foundation for the side rooms was ten and a half feet high. The thickness of the outer wall of the side rooms was eight and three quarters feet, and the free space between the side rooms of the temple at the end of the outer chamber was thirty-five feet wide all around the temple. The side rooms opened into the free space, one entrance toward the north and one toward the south, and the area of the free space was eight and three quarters feet wide all around. Now, the building that faced the temple courtyard, the temple yard toward the west was 122 and a half feet wide, and the wall of the building was eight and three quarters feet thick on all sides, and the building's length was 157 and a half feet. Then the man measured the temple, 
it was 175 feet long. In addition, the temple yard and all the building and the building, including its walls, were 175 feet long. The width of the front of the temple along the temple yard to the east was 175 feet, as it was to the west. Interior wooden structures. The interior of the great hall and the porticos of the court, the thresholds, the beveled windows, and the balconies all around with their three levels opposite the threshold were overlaid with wood on all sides. They were paneled from the ground to the windows, but the windows were not covered, reaching to the top of the entrance and as far as the inner temple and on the outside. On every wall all around, on the inside and outside, was a pattern carved with cherubim and palm trees. There were was a palm tree between each pair of cherubim. Each cherub had two faces, a human face turned toward the palm tree on one side and a lion's face turned toward it on the other. They were carved throughout the temple on all sides. Cherubim and palm trees were carved from the ground to the top of the entrance and on the wall of the great hall. The doorposts of the great hall were doorposts of the great hall were square and the front of the sanctuary had the same appearance. The altar was made of wood, five and a quarter feet high, three and a half feet long. It had corners, and its length and sides were of wood. And the man told me, This is the table that stands before the Lord. The great hall and the sanctuary each had swinging panels. There were two panels for one door and two for the other. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the doors of the great hall like those carved on the walls. And there was a wooden canopy outside in front of the portico. There were beveled windows and palm trees on both sides, on both, on the side walls of the portico, and the side rooms of the temple, and the canopies. The priest's chambers. Then the man led me out by way of the north gate into the outer court, and he brought me to the group of chambers opposite the temple yard and opposite the building to the north. Along the length of the chambers, which was 175 feet, there was an entrance on the north. The width was 87 and a half feet. Opposite the 35-foot space belonging to the inner court and the outside, opposite the paved surface belonging to the outer court, the structure rose gallery by, oh, rose gallery by gallery in three tiers. In front of the chambers was a walkway toward the inside, 17 and a half feet wide and 175 feet long, and their entrances were on the north. The upper chambers were narrower because the galleries took away more space from them than the lower and middle stories of the building. For they were arranged in three stories and had no pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper chambers were set back from the ground more than the lower and middle stories. A wall on the outside ran in front of the chambers, parallel to them, toward the outer court, and it was a hundred. It was 87 and a half feet long, for the chambers on the outer court were 87 and a half feet long, while those facing the great hall were 175 feet long. I know you're getting all this, right? I'm just going to break things up by saying that. At the base of these chambers, there was an entryway on the east side as one enters them from the outer court. Sit tight. God's showing up here just momentarily. In the thickness of the wall of the court toward the south, there were chambers facing the temple yard and the western building with a passageway in front of them, just like the chambers that faced north, and their length and width as well as all their exits, measurements, and entrances were identical. The entrance at the beginning of the passageway, the way in front of the corresponding wall as one enters on the east side, was similar to the entrances of the chambers that were on the south side. And then the man said to me, 
The northern and southern chambers that face the courtyard are the holy chambers where the priests who approach the Lord will eat the most holy offerings. There they will deposit the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, sin offering, and guilt offerings, for the place is holy. Once the priests have entered, they are not to go out of from the holy area to the outer court until they have removed their, the clothes that they minister in, for these are holy. They are to put on other clothes before they enter or approach the public area. Outside dimensions, I'll just say, a huge chunk of that is reiterating what went on, you know, in terms of, rest- this is restoring what kind of all got torn down, right? When he finished measuring inside the temple complex, he led me out by way of the gate that faced east and measured all around the complex. It measured on each side by 875 feet, had a wall around it 875 feet long, 875 feet wide, to separate the holy from the common. And then he led me to the gate, the one that faces east. Pause. My friends, when God left, symbolically, the Garden of Eden, which direction did he go? Hmm, good guess. He led me to the gate, the one that faces east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the one I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the ones I had seen by the Chibar Canal. I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by way of the gate that faced east, and then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my name, my holy name, by their religious prostitution and by the corpses of their kings at their high places. Whenever they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their their doorpost beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they were defiling my holy name by the detestable acts they committed. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution and the corpses of their kings far from me and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Did you catch that, my friends? As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its pattern, and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them, its layout with its exits and entrances, its complete design with all, along with all its statutes, design specifications, and laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe its complete design and all its statutes statutes and may carry them out this is the law of the temple all its surrounding territory on top of the mountain will be especially holy yes this is the law of the temple chapter 43 ending at verse 12 my friends from genesis to maps god's heart is to be with us are you with are you with me on that And somehow, in all of that crazy weirdness we just read, 
and some of this figurative, some of it literal. We can't get that deep into it on this podcast, but somehow even the measure of the pattern is some part of God's revelation to himself of himself in a way that that helps us see him more clearly, right? And should make us ashamed of our own sin. From Genesis to maps, God's heart is to be with us. And I partially, I think it's useful to remember that in sections of the Bible, like we're in right now in Ezekiel, we have to go digging for the reason. But God returns, worship is reestablished, and ultimately, as we will see, the land is redistributed. And at the very end of Ezekiel, spoiler alert, there will be a new city called Yahweh is there. Who then is this Jesus? My friends, false expectations. This is D.A. Carson. False expectations are subtle things, right? Even Jesus' immediate family, as we heard, apparently expected a certain intimacy with him that his sense of messianic calling reserved exclusively for his disciples. Kind of crazy. Oh, these are my brothers and mothers and sisters, right? So my friends, ultimately, if we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually exists, the real one, not the made up one, we must be prepared to come to terms with all the revelation of Jesus recorded in scripture and seek to make sense of the whole, which, dare I say, includes even this weird stuff in Ezekiel. I love you, my friends. Amen. Amen. <laughs>